If you have your Bibles or a mobile device, uh, go ahead and turn to Psalm 130. Again, we're going through the Psalms that are presented in our devotional, A Good Confession. And uh, this morning, we continue our study of the human heart, particularly the study of how does the human heart that is just desperately broken, how does it experience healing? And what we're learning as we go through this summer series in the Psalms is that the Psalms are God's counseling book. God wants to counsel our hearts and heal them of their brokenness. If you remember, biblically, the definition of a heart is the foundational seat of our thoughts, feelings, desires, and choices. And we're born into this world. We're actually conceived, the Bible says, with broken hearts. Because of Adam and Eve and their rebellion against God's first command, everybody that's descended from Adam and Eve by ordinary generation is born, even conceived, guilty and polluted by Adam and Eve's sin. And one of the greatest pains that enters the human heart because of sin and brokenness are the devastating emotions of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame often are talked about together, but they really are two different things. Guilt is feeling that you've done something wrong. Shame is an identity statement you make about yourself that there's something wrong with me. See the difference? Guilt is, I've failed. Shame is the identity statement that says, I am a failure. Guilt is the feeling, I've blown it. Shame is the negative identity statement, I am a loser. And every one of us, normally on a daily basis, we wrestle with guilt and shame. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus of Nazareth, who didn't come to earth by ordinary generation, he was protected from the guilt and pollution of Adam and Eve's sin because of the virgin birth. And Jesus came to release us from our prisons of guilt and shame. One of the greatest pictures I've ever seen of the release from the prison of guilt and shame is in a movie that was released in 1986. It has now recently been defined as one of the top 50 movies of all time that address a religious theme. It's called The Mission. It stars Jeremy Irons as a Jesuit priest in Paraguay, South America. And he works among this tribal people called the Guaranis. And all around this tribal people, there are rich plantation owners. Robert De Niro actually plays the character of a slave trader. And he finds slaves by actually kidnapping natives from the Guarani tribe. He's decimated their ranks. They know he is an evil man. Jeremy Irons, the Jesuit priest, finally meets up with Robert De Niro and says, you need 
to get right with God. And De Niro decides that he needs to do penance. So he wraps up all of his slave trading armor. His, his armor, his weapons, his helmet. Everything that he owns that reminds him of the guilt and shame of his past life. And he carries that bundle up this cliff walk. And he walks with the natives whom he has kidnapped from their tribe. They all despise him. They all hate him. But they've become Christians. And they don't know what to do with him. They want to kill him, but they realize now as Christians, they can't. But watch what happens after De Niro has been walking miles with the baggage and burden of his guilt and shame. few emotions more invigorating than the feeling of freedom that comes with the release of guilt and shame. There are all kinds of elements to the backstory of what we just saw. And we find those elements in the passage before us this morning. Some of us have been walking around with a burden, a weighty burden of guilt and shame for years. 
Some of us have been walking with that burden for decades. And it makes life almost unbearable. We look for coping mechanisms to try to numb it or deny it or ignore it. But we can only be released from guilt and shame by the ones we have wronged or more accurately by the one ultimately who is the brunt of our every wrong and if he is willing to forgive us then that is good news indeed So let's all stand out of reverence for the Word of God. Follow along. If you don't have your Bibles or a mobile device, the text will be printed up there on your screens. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. In other words, when David or the people of Israel would go up to the temple to worship, they would ascend the holy mountain up to the temple. And these kinds of psalms is what they would sing as they head up to the temple. When you go up to the temple to worship the holy God, Yahweh, the one thing you're going to need to deal with is that sense of your guilt and shame. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he wants us to be free from the burden of guilt and shame. Let's pray. Father, there isn't one person here that doesn't wrestle constantly with guilt and shame. Or Father, if if there is someone here who doesn't, then they're not very healthy. Their consciences are seared. So Lord, we pray that we would understand today better how to deal with guilt and shame. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So there are three principles in this text related to being released from the burden of guilt and shame. First of all, first principle, the way up is the way down. The way up out of the pit of guilt and shame is actually the way down in humility into acknowledging your need, into confessing your failure. Look at verse 1. 
Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The depths of guilt, the depths of shame, and all the feelings of rejection and isolation and despair that go with it. One of the great ironies or paradoxes, if you will, of being released from guilt and shame is that you first need to be humbled down on your knees, confessing that your guilt is real. There are so many people today, secular psychologists, the the world's culture in general, who are trying to get people to think that guilt is something from your past, that it really has nothing to do with reality. It's simply a feeling others are putting on you or, or something you're placing on yourself. And, and what psychologists are finding is it doesn't work. It's make-believe to tell people, don't feel guilty. That, that's like if someone puts their hand on a hot stove and it starts burning, you start telling yourself, that's not hot, it's not real, I don't feel pain. How ridiculous would that be? Folks, it is just as ridiculous to tell somebody not to feel guilty because it's not real. Of course it's real. It's a sign of health. Just like pain in your hand when you touch a hot stove is a sign of health. They they have that congenital uh, analgesic syndrome what that means is the person's born without pain receptors. They, they can't feel pain. And they're always breaking bones. They're always getting burned. They're always getting cut. Because it's healthy to feel pain. A sign of a healthy emotional life is that you do feel guilt. And sometimes shame. You're a psychopath if you don't. And so the first thing we do to deal with guilt and shame is to embrace the reality of our failure. I know it sounds counterintuitive. I know it sounds like, well, this sounds like a happy occasion. You know, let's just embrace our guilt. And and you think, well, if I do that, I'm going to be undone. If I do that, I'm going to be devastated. I'm always going to be depressed. And, and, And that's what's so counterintuitive about the gospel. That's actually not true. Look at verse 2. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. It is clear that all through this psalm, the psalmist is confessing real guilt, true guilt. The, The word mercy means you don't get the punishment you deserve. So in giving a plea for mercy, the psalmist is again taking the the low road, downward mobility. He's actually acknowledging, I feel guilty because I am guilty. And what I have done or not done by disobeying your commands, I fully deserve to be punished. Now you think, well, this isn't sounding any better. This is sounding even more depressing. It's counterintuitive, folks. It's a paradox. The way up is the way down. The surprising first step to be free from guilt and shame is to acknowledge the reality of your guilt. Every one of us have been created by the living personal God who is eternal. And because of that, 
He knows how we best run. He knows what is best for us. All his commands are an invitation to our highest pleasure. And all of his prohibitions are a warning against our worst nightmare. And when we go away or against from God's commands or or ignore his prohibitions, we are committing high treason against the God of the universe, and therefore we experience real guilt. And you can try to numb it, you can try to deny it, you can try to ignore it all you want. But it will eat you up. It's been estimated that 85% of all of the people in emotional mental hospitals could be released tomorrow if one thing were true. You know what it is? If they could know they were forgiven. 85% of the people in psychiatric hospitals today could go home tomorrow if they could believe they're forgiven. And yet, what happens in our world is people aren't being told they actually need forgiveness. They're actually counseled, well, don't be so hard on yourself. It's not real guilt. And all we're doing is keeping people in that burden of guilt and shame. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, verse 3, who could stand? Three truths there. God exists, God is holy, and on our best days we fall infinitely short of what God requires of us. Perfect love for Him 24-7 and perfect love for neighbor 24-7. And anything short of that, we incur real guilt. But the way we experience release from guilt is to acknowledge our failure. There's a story told of uh, King Frederick II. He was the king of Prussia, which is now modern-day Germany. And the capital of the king of Prussia was Berlin, the same Berlin of Germany in our day. And King Frederick decided he wanted to visit one of the kingdom's prisons. And as his name was announced, all of the prisoners stood up. But they really didn't stand up out of honor for the king. They stood up to protest their innocence. Every single one of them just crying out, I've been imprisoned unjustly. I shouldn't be here. I'm innocent, O majesty. And everybody was just clamoring except for one dude in a corner cell. He was just sitting on the floor completely oblivious to what seemed to be happening. And the king stopped and said, Son, what are you here for? And the man got up and said, Armed robbery, your majesty. The king said, Well, did you do it? And the man said, I was desperate, your highness. My family was hungry. And I did it. I completely deserve my punishment. The king was shocked. And he smiled at the guard. And he said, guard, release this guilty man. I do not want him corrupting all of these innocent people. The point is obvious. The path to freedom is the path of confession, acknowledgement, owning your guilt, confessing your failure. 
It may sound depressing when it's actually the path to joy. The way up out of guilt and shame is the way down into confessing our need and our brokenness. The grace of God flows downhill to the spirit of the Christian broken on his or her knees because of their failure. And then secondly, the way up is the way down. The way forward is the way back. It's not just acknowledging sin. It's also acknowledging who God is. The way forward is the way back. The way back is the way back to the basics of the gospel, the basics of the Christian life. Look at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You would think it would say, with you is the power to cast into the flames of hell forever. So therefore you're to be feared. It doesn't say that. It says, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Well, first of all, we need to recognize that the word fear, fear of the Lord, does not mean terrorized or terrified or scared or afraid. The fear of the Lord is a love and affection for God because, as we sang in the song this morning, He is so beautiful. There's no more beautiful name And the more we understand God's love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, the more we grow in the fear of the Lord, which is trusting the Lord, honoring the Lord, worshiping the Lord, and loving Him with all of our hearts. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And what we need to realize is as we embrace the reality of our guilt, it doesn't stop there. We go back to the basics of the gospel which are Jesus came to live a perfectly obedient life. Jesus came to succeed where Adam and all of us have failed. Jesus lives a righteous life as our representative, and then he dies a substitutionary death for the guilt of our sin. And the punishment that our sin actually does deserve is placed on Jesus. And to understand and trust the gospel is that we transfer our trust from our own efforts to work off our guilt, our own efforts to cover our own shame, and admitting our sin freely, having nothing to offer to Jesus but our sin and failure, we rest in the promise of his forgiveness based on the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. And in verse 5, the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. What does that mean? You've heard me say it before. When it comes to the gospel, my heart is like Teflon, right? The truths of the gospel of grace are always slipping off. I'm always falling into guilt and shame, and I'm always forgetting to go back to the cross, back to the elementary principles of the gospel. Another way to put it is every single one of us has gospel amnesia. We can hear the gospel every single day, and yet every single day when we blow it, we're filled with guilt and shame, and we forget to go back 
back to the cross, back to the elementary principles of the gospel. So the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. I wait for a fresh experience of forgiving grace. I wait for a fresh experience of mercy. Now see, this is easier when you're a new Christian. It's a lot harder when you're an older Christian, you've been a Christian for a while. See, when I was a brand new Christian, I have some dear, dear friends here from Penn State, some of my fraternity brothers. We need to give them a hand. Come on. I love it. So when I, when I first became a Christian, these guys knew me. They knew me before Christ. They knew me after Christ. When I first became a Christian, I had nothing to offer God. Nothing. I didn't own a Bible. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't go to church. I had nothing to offer God but my sin. The gospel was easy to believe. I had nothing else. But then over time as a Christian, you, you, you grow. You, you gain stuff. You, you go to church. You get involved in Sunday school. You begin to engage in worship. You start practicing generosity. You read your Bible. You pray. And then you commit the same sins you've wrestled with since you were 20. And you begin to think, I don't deserve this grace. And you, you sort of begin to engage in what I call Protestant penance. You, you, you begin to tell yourself that you need to feel bad enough long enough so that you can feel worthy again. And you know our biggest problem when we go through that gymnastics routine? thinking that we deserved it the first time we blew it. Folks, nobody deserves forgiveness. The kingdom of God is not an entitlement enterprise. None of us ever deserve forgiveness. What we deserve is strict justice. And God in His infinite love and grace offers through the work of His Son to take away the guilt and shame of our sin. And that can never get old. It's something we must revisit Again and again and again. Verse 7. With the Lord is steadfast love. We keep running back to the Father. Even covered with the guilt and dirt of our sin. Laura and I lived in Chicago for some years. That's where I went to seminary. And uh, we had a friend in Chicago who had a young six-year-old, seven-year-old boy who loved to play in a sandbox. He, he just loved playing trucks and having massive crashes. He loved pretending he was flying a plane and dropping bombs on the enemy. And he would always go and throw up the sand. And as a result, he was never allowed to play in the sandbox after it had rained for obvious reasons. The way he loved to explode things with his hands, he'd get mud in his eye. And it always hurts to have sand in your eye. So sure enough, one day it had rained. And he was always supposed to ask his mom and dad for permission and they would go check the sandbox to see if it was dry so he could play. Well, they checked the sandbox, and sure enough, it was still wet, so he couldn't play. He was so disappointed. It was so sunny out. 
And so he snuck out. He went to the backyard and sort of and I was having a grand time. And then sure enough, <coughs> mud gets in his eye. It's painful. He starts crying. His father hears him, runs to the sliding glass door, looks out and sees his son where he knows his son's not supposed to be. And at the same moment, the father recognizes the son sees the father and also knows he's where he shouldn't be. And now he's covered with sand, dirt, mud, guilt, and shame. And the father stood there for just a second, a half second, before he ran out to his son. And he wondered, what's he going to do? Is he going to start running open arms to me, the father who loves him? Or are his guilt and shame going to cause him to stay away? And the father in heaven spoke to the father on earth. And said to him about his own life. Yeah. Dave. It's a lot easier to hug a dirty child. Than to hug a distant child. What are you going to be? When it comes to our guilt and shame. Are you forgetting the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace. Of the father. And just sitting in your dirt, feeling unworthy to go to him because you've done the same thing for the thousandth time. Look, God can handle your sin. God can handle your dirt, your mud. But it's a whole lot easier to hug a dirty child than to hug a distant child. You don't need to bear this weight of guilt and shame. Run to the Father who will meet you with forgiveness in Christ. And then thirdly, the way out is the way in. What I mean by this is the way out of our guilt and shame is the way in to loving community who preaches the gospel to us continually. Look at verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. The, the man finally, the psalmist finally takes his eyes off of himself and looks upon others. O Israel, O congregation, O church, O wife, O husband, O son, O daughter, O friend, hope in the Lord. When we are wrapped up with guilt and shame, we are completely self-absorbed. Nobody else even enters our framework. Because we're so consumed with how badly we feel. But when you experience the grace, forgiveness, love, and mercy of God, you begin to be freed from self-absorption. You begin to focus on others. And as you proclaim to others the same grace that you've experienced, as you express that, you experience it more deeply. It's giving testimony to what the grace of God has done for you. He says in verse 7, he goes on, with him is plentiful redemption. In other words, God buys us back. Jesus Christ and his blood was sent to buy us back from guilt and shame so that we'd never be enslaved by it again. 
Verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There is no sin so great. There is no sin so numerously committed. There is no sin so deep, guilt so great, shame so deep that God cannot wipe it out by the blood of Jesus Christ. The other thing we find out when we turn outward to the church, to other friends in Christ, and proclaim the the message of forgiveness and grace and love and mercy to them, we begin to realize we're not all alone. You know, that's one thing the world hates about the church. The world thinks the church is filled with self-righteous, holier-than-thou people who pretend they've got it all together when the world can clearly see we don't have it together. And that's such a shame because that's not the church. The church is the fellowship, the communion of the guilty and shameful. And as we begin to understand that the enemy tries to lie to us, the enemy tries to tell us that that we're the only ones that experience shame. We're the only ones that experience guilt. As God begins to reveal to us that that's a lie, and we begin to boldly talk about the grace that we're experiencing on a daily basis in the midst of our failure, then sinners come out of the woodwork. And the real Me Too movement begins. You've done that? Me too. You're guilty of that? Me too. You've wronged God that way? Me too. And as we begin to realize that we're not alone, then in a sense, this is just the normal Christian life. We're not proud of it, but it's just what is the normal Christian life. We're, we're a bunch of redeemed sinners learning slowly day by day to try to sin less. But when we do, we have hope in the Lord. A story was told by my friend Brian Chappell. Uh, there, was a, there was a family visiting his church, and um, the family had a, a, an older dad that was pretty far advanced, sadly, in Alzheimer's. And just like today at Oak Mountain, it was Communion Sunday, and they were, it wasn't COVID, right? So they were passing the communion plates. And when it got to the father with Alzheimer's, he took the plate, but then he wouldn't give it up. He would, he would let go. And so they try to, you know, nicely say, Dad, let, let go of the plate. And, and he would start to get really, uh, you know, unruly. And, and they, they tried to escort him out, and he started cussing. Right, I mean, you know, right here. I mean, you can hear everybody right here, you know. He started cussing a blue streak, and everybody was like, felt so bad, and people were uncomfortable. And thankfully, the pastor stood up and realized what was happening and said, wait a minute. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Grab hold of Christ and never let go. And we too have curses on our lips. We too are rebels in our hearts. We too are shouting and resisting. And God says... Don't ever let go of Christ. Don't ever, ever, ever let go. 
And God wants us to know that so much that not only has he given us the gospel verbally, but he's also given us the gospel in picture form. And the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body given for you. Then after supper, he took the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the remission of sins of many, all of you. Now at Oak Mountain, we practice what is called open communion. And that means you don't need to be a member of Oak Mountain. This is the Lord's table. But you do need to understand and respond to the message this morning. And that is we come admitting our sin, confessing our guilt, pleading for mercy, hoping in the promises of the gospel that God is filled with mercy, love, forgiveness, and grace. And for those of you who are watching at home, uh, at this point in time, we're actually going to start serving uh, under the overhang uh, outside the rear entrance to the church. So if you'd want to get in your cars, uh, you can go through that overhang. There are going to be elders there uh, serving anyone who's watching that can't be with us because of uh, high risk factors or whatever reason it might be. And they'll be teaching elders to go ahead and serve you communion. As the uh, elders come forward, you'll notice this is a touchless communion experience. Uh, there are single cups that have not been touched by human hands, just gloved hands. Um, there are two flaps, two cellophane flaps that you need to pull back. You just pull back the top one, it will, it will reveal the bread and wait until we've all partaken together. I'll lead us through that. And then once we've done the bread, then there's a second lid you pull back and that will reveal the fruit of the vine and we'll partake of that together as well. So the ushers are going to ask you how many are in your group and then the group, uh, the group leader that's sort of closest to the elder will take that number and then pass it to the individuals in your group. Let me pray. Father, we ask you to set apart these elements from their common use. We recognize that it's simply bread and the fruit of the vine. There's no magical change here. But Jesus, we also recognize you are spiritually present by the power of the Spirit to bless us with a conviction that you love us because of your work and that you are committed to always dealing with our guilt and shame in a gracious and merciful and kind way. God, we pray this morning there really would be a release in everyone's life from the burden of guilt and shame. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.